This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello and welcome to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. Thanks for joining us here today. Uh, We are without Parisa Noble today, our our normal co-host. She is on maternity leave for the next few weeks. So for the next couple of weeks, it'll be myself and other guests and co-hosts and whatnot. Um, So wish her a speedy uh, return to uh, motherhood and and work and life and all that good stuff. Um, You can find Transformation Ground Control live on YouTube every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time in the United States, uh, 3 p.m. London, and 11 p.m. Hong Kong to Hong Kong time, I should say. And uh, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, etc. Uh, so I encourage you to subscribe if you haven't already and check us out on any of those uh, formats. We have a great show for you today. Um, a lot of guests, actually, a lot of uh, listener interaction happening today as well. I'm trying to compensate for the fact that I don't have a co-host, so I'm, I'm going to leverage uh, feedback and questions from the audience, and uh, we're going to get to that here first, but uh, also on the show, uh, we're going to cover a few different things. One is we're going to dive in first uh, with some Q&A related to uh, whether or not Agile should be used in ERP implementations and digital transformations, or whether the more traditional waterfall approach is most relevant. So that's a common controversy and discussion point in the industry right now, so we want to cover that and, and get some feedback from our listeners on that front. We're also going to talk about uh, private equity and mergers and acquisitions, so digital transformation in situations where a company is merging with other companies, they're out acquiring other companies, and or uh, there's some sort of private equity involvement. And so we're going to talk with Stuart Robb and Wayne Holtham from the Third Stage team who uh, have been around the block a few times and dealt with a lot of different organizations that are either PE-owned or have gone through mergers and acquisitions. Uh, in the context of a digital transformation. So we're going to talk about some of the lessons from uh, those situations. And actually, even if you're not a part of a private equity group or a private equity-backed organization, or even if you're not an organization that has gone through significant mergers and acquisitions, this is still going to be a really good conversation because we're going to talk about some of the fundamentals of doing a digital transformation when you've got disparate operations and you're trying to merge together multiple operations Um, How do you pull together multiple systems, multiple data points, all that sort of stuff that is important to any sort of transformation, but even more important for a M&A or private equity backed uh, transformation, uh, it's going to be relevant to that. So I encourage you to stick around for that interview. Uh, We're going to go into quite a bit of detail actually on that discussion. And then we're also going to get into, uh, finally, we're going to get into who owns or who should own digital transformation within your organization. Should it be your IT group? Should it be... Uh, a PMO should be your executive team. Who who should own this ultimately? And this is actually where we're going to involve more uh, listener feedback as well. So stick around for that segment as well. We'll we'll get to some of those uh, questions and answers. 
So to start, uh, before we get into our, our first guest and before we bring on uh, Wayne and Stuart from our team to talk about private equity and transformations in the midst of mergers and acquisitions, wanted to bring up a question that we've had with our, with our team, uh, with our listeners, I should say, on social media. Uh, if you follow me on LinkedIn, I, I tend to post questions commonly just to get people's feedback and get diverse opinions on, on industry leaders and people that are actually going through these transformations. In addition to our own consultants, it's, it's good to get that outside feedback. And so that's something that I'm constantly doing on social media. And by the way, if you're not connected with me on, on LinkedIn, or if you're not following me, I encourage you to do that and be part of the conversation. Um, I'm going to pull in a lot of people into this conversation without them necessarily knowing it because we've engaged on social media. So the question I posed that I wanted to talk about here uh, very quickly or, or for the next few minutes before our, our first guest is the question I asked on LinkedIn read, do agile approaches help ERP implementations and digital transformation projects go more smoothly? Or is it just another buzzword approach that fails to fix the root cause of failure? I'm curious to hear what you all think. So this is a post I made a few days ago and I got a lot of responses and I won't go through them all, but I wanted to cherry pick some of the diverse opinions and different points of view uh, that have come up in this discussion here on social media. And I'd actually be curious to hear what some of the listeners think that weren't part of this discussion. I'd love to hear your feedback on this as well. So the, really the root of the question is Agile versus Waterfall. Is Agile appropriate for ERP? And maybe just to back up, I'll talk about what Agile is. Um, Agile transformations typically involve more of a, a bite-sized, quick-hit, incremental type of approach to transformation, whereas Waterfall is more of your traditional sequential type of approach. So with Waterfall, which is the historically traditional way that you would implement any sort of software technology, you would have a designated design phase where you define all your requirements and your business processes, and then you get through that entire phase before you start building and testing and deploying technology. Now, Agile, on the other hand, takes a different approach. It doesn't have such a long lead time uh, in that upfront design phase, and it's focused on pulling out bits and pieces or, or smaller parts of the organization to get quick wins and to get functionality up and running more quickly. So the whole idea behind Agile and the whole appeal of Agile is that it could be a way to get value faster. It can be a way to get some quick wins, get momentum, and not have to spend a ton of time and money up front before you even start deploying or, or even designing uh, some of the technology. So that's the gist of what we're talking about here today. And I have strong opinions on this topic, but I always love to hear what others think. So the question is Agile versus Waterfall. Is Agile actually better than Waterfall? Agile is a hot thing right now, big buzzword. A lot of people are, are focused on Agile and uh, it's it's uh, sort of the new flavor of the month, I guess I'd say from a, from a project management and a development perspective. So some of the feedback we received uh, to that question, first of all, in no particular order, um, Malcolm Sask, who's uh, someone that I interact with on LinkedIn, came back with a comment here that said, shouldn't that be a decision based on the client situation, not the implementer? And that's a great point that I, I couldn't agree more with. Um, a lot of times, I think we tend, as consultants, we tend to have preconceived ideas or cookie cutter answers that we think is a one size fits all approach. And the reality is, is that no approach, whether it's Agile or Waterfall or any other sort of methodology or tool set is going to be 100% perfect or 100% appropriate for all organizations out there. You really have to look at, you know, what the specific situation of the, of the team is and, and of the, the organization and the culture that you're dealing with. 
So that's a that's another you know sort of a first point here is that it, it really should be based on the client situation, not the implementer. I will say that most implementers or a lot of system integrators and implementers now are moving more towards an agile development and implementation approach. Whether that's right or wrong is a different story, but that tends to be where a lot of system integrators are moving. And part of that is because I think, in my opinion, there's been so many failures in the past and so much of the failures in the past have been a result of not ever really getting any value from the investments that agile in some ways is somewhat of a course correction and in some ways a overcorrection to what has been a challenge with transformations and ERP implementations in the past. So with that, I think the pendulum swinging to the other extreme now where a lot of system implementers are focusing on that agile sort of approach and really trying to uh, get more of a quick hit low-hanging fruit type of approach to these sorts of transformations. So uh, that's one point there. Uh, another point they received here from uh, Dennis Antony. He said, at the end of the day, if the client does not know to prepare the business case, stating clearly his or her current infrastructure and to the level he wants, the move to failure is inevitable. So I think the, the point uh, Dennis is trying to make there is that you need to have a business case and you need to, need to have a uh, the right infrastructure to make your, your project successful. Another uh, really interesting point that I received uh, in this, this question is from Carl Walter Kirsted, and I hope I pronounced your last name correctly, Carl, um, but he's someone that I know I've been, I recognize his name. We've been connected for a few, uh, quite a few years, if I remember correctly. Uh, but his comment is pretty telling and pretty interesting. He said, it's hard to comment as there seem to be at least two popular definitions. One, there's the tactical component of Agile, so that's just how we execute. And then number two is the strategic component of Agile. So looking at the strategic changes in the outside world and adjusting to uh, those, those situations. And his point here is that he doesn't think that just that tactical approach to, to Agile on its own is going to be successful, but really you need a blend of both. You need the execution and the, the strategic aspect of Agile. And I'm not sure if this is exactly what uh, Carl uh, was was insinuating or where he was going with that, that thread or that thought process, but just to add to what he's saying here, I think that a big problem with Agile is that too many organizations use it as an excuse to not clearly define all of their business requirements and their end-to-end -end processes and really define what that big picture is. If you don't have that big, big picture uh, view, I guess the good news is you didn't have to spend the time up front defining the big picture um, and you get into the actual execution and implementation faster, which may feel like you're moving along faster. But what we see oftentimes in the long run is that you end up going in a bunch of different directions. There's no clear vision for where the project is headed, what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, back to the previous point about the business case, if you don't have a clear business case of what kind of value you're trying to get, you're just gonna go off and start building stuff that may or may not be aligned with your longer term, bigger picture, strategic uh, aspects of your, of your organization. So it's really important to make sure that you have that big picture view and you can certainly go execute and implement from an agile perspective, but there is a lot of value in defining those end-to-end -end processes, especially for organizations that have grown through acquisition or they have disparate operations or um, independent ways of operating and they're trying to pull this all together. If that's the case, then you don't want to just jump into an agile situation because you're going to end up back where you are, which is you implement a bunch of stuff quickly, but it's going to be stuff that's going to most likely be aligned with the way you do things today, not necessarily where you want to be going strategically. 
So I think the key here is to really find that balance, and I think that's what, what Carl is referring to as well in, in some of his comments here. Um, some other comments we have here, um, from one from Darrow Weiss. Uh, he said, after hundreds of implementations, his company found it overwhelming evidence that Agile is far superior to Waterfall, if done correctly. Too often, customers mistake Agile sprints with races, cutting corners, and not thoroughly testing and assuring readiness before a go-live. And that's really well put. You, Agile can work if you do it correctly, but too many people, I think, in my opinion, abuse the whole Agile concept. And again, I hate to you know call out the industry, but I, I feel like there's a lot of... Uh, uh, this is used as, a, as an excuse to cut corners or to take the easy route, which is let's just go build stuff. Let's not worry about getting internal alignment. Let's not worry about defining end-to-end -end business processes and a lot of that legwork, that heavy lifting that should happen up front, Agile is oftentimes used as an, ex or as an excuse to bypass some of those things. So that's something that uh, you really want to watch for if you are moving into an Agile sort of uh, development environment or, or a transformation environment, whether it's your own PMO or your own organization that's driving it or whether it's your system integrator, you want to make sure you have a clear vision and that you can use these Agile sprints as a way to get to a clear, bigger picture, long-term view of how this transformation fits into your organization. Um, some other comments here. One is from uh, Pardeep Kalsi. He said, requirements, solution development, and design completion can be agile. When you get to user acceptance and deployment, a traditional waterfall approach is needed. Uh, the business change needs time to be determined and change management initiatives to be put in place. And that's a really good point too. I think there's there's something to be said about the the focus on change management and making sure that uh, you have those change uh, initiatives in place and the change support to ensure that the people are moving along with the the transformation. You know, one thing about agile is the the agile approach is really focused on getting processes and and systems in place quickly, in which you can do that. In theory, you can do that pretty quickly. You can generally do that a lot faster than you can move people. And Agile, unfortunately, doesn't necessarily help with the people side of the equation. If people are the ones holding back the, you know, the speed at which a project moves, then you need something that's in sync with that people side of the equation. Not to say necessarily that you should be going slower, but you at the very least need to invest very heavily in change management to ensure your people can change as quickly as you can develop new software and roll out new processes and changes along the way. Uh, or if you can't do that, or if you have a kind of culture that's just very slow to change and it's going to be resistant to change, you may find that Agile actually is moving too fast and you actually might find some value in slowing down and, and having a more deliberate, steady, measured approach to how you deploy technology. Another comment here from Andrew Mills. Uh, he says, being systemic and having a clearly defined approach is more important. I would say going live with an entire warehouse can't be agile, but the development and testing that lead to it, yes. I think having phases like uh, SIT, uh, UAT, so testing, system integration testing, or user acceptance testing are important for large phased changes. Uh, I think that's a very good point and very well put. Um, having a clearly defined approach is more important. And a lot of times, you know, set aside Agile and Waterfall for a second and just talk about general strategy and general implementation approach and priorities. If all you do is have alignment on what those priorities are and what the appropriate approach is, that alone is a lot more powerful than arguing over whether or not Agile is right or wrong or whether Waterfall is right or wrong or 
whether you should do a big bang or phased approach. You know, there's a lot of different decisions that need to be made. Some of them may be better decisions for your organization. Some of them may be less good for your organization. But what's even more important than the decisions themselves is just making sure that your entire team is on the same page and headed in the same direction. If you have that level of alignment, um, to me, that's more important than the actual decision itself. Now, ideally, you would have both. You would have the right decision that makes the most sense for you as an organization, but you would also have um, you would also have uh, the other aspect of it as well. So, some other thoughts here, some other questions um, or responses, I should say. Uh, Agile alone cannot fix the root causes of failure. Agile can work depending on the ERP de- being deployed and the readiness of the organization. It's a great point. I think you have to look at your culture and see, you know, if you're a if you're a startup, if you're an entrepreneurial company, if you're a smaller company, if you're a company that moves very quickly and you adapt very quickly, then agile probably makes a little bit more sense than other uh, counterparts that you might see. Now, if you're a big multinational organization and you've acquired a bunch of companies, you've uh, entered new markets, um, you're slow to change, you have pockets of resistance within the organization, which most organizations do. If all those things add up to a different scenario where maybe a more waterfall-centric approach makes sense, then you should do that. Um, I think at the end of the day, there is no right or wrong answer universally. It's just a matter of fitting the right approach with the right situation. And so uh, that's that's a great point that uh, Andrew has there. Uh, Peter Bjorkman, which is another uh, industry peer that I've been connected with for a long time. He He always has good comments, and this is no different here. This is a very good comment. Uh, if if by agile you mean just get started, then it's a bad idea. As a smart man said, if I were given one hour to save the planet, I would spend 59 minutes defining the problem and one minute resolving it. And that was Albert Einstein that said that. So great, relevant quote. I couldn't agree more. And uh, that quote is actually very relevant. And I, and I think the problem that Peter is pointing out is that too many teams use it as an excuse to let's just get started. Let's just do something. And sometimes that's not the right answer. You don't need to do something. You need to do the right thing. You need to be deliberate and focused and have a clear strategy that makes the most sense for for you as an organization. One thing I'll add to what Peter said too is that a lot of times system integrators, in my opinion, will use Agile as an excuse to let's just get started. Hire us now and we will come tomorrow and we will start doing stuff. And it's a way to get a foot in the door. It's a way to start showing some immediate value, which everyone wants to do. They want to see value. They want to see results. But the problem is if you don't have a clear vision, a clear direction, you're just going to be paying for that speed later on. And you're going to end up spending a lot of time and money doing things that aren't relevant to your business or that you you could be doing more effectively. So I think that's well put. Spend most of your time uh, planning and uh, and then the, the other stuff will fall into place. You know, I guess I'll, I'll take one other point here just in the interest of time. There was a ton of or a ton of responses, I should say. You know, actually, I'll give you two because one is very simple. Uh, Barry Clark responded. You know, the question was, "Is Agile, you know, the right answer?" Uh, Barry Clark said, "No," and that was that was his response. So, didn't elaborate on that, but had had a strong uh, reaction to that. And then uh, the final uh, uh, comment I'll point out here, the response that we saw here in this post on LinkedIn, is, uh, "I don't believe Agile approach is suited for ERP projects. It's an extremely or it, it is extremely critical to finish a stage and then move on to the next. Clean gateways are one of the only ways to assure, ensure project success. The agile approach will be counterproductive. So strong reaction, sort of a counterpoint to some of the other 
uh, pro-agile sorts of sentiments that you oftentimes see in the market. Um, I would just say, you know, I, I agree with you in many cases, but I, I do think there are cases where agile can work. Like I said, if you're a startup, you're a smaller company, you're high growth, or you're, you're a type of company that just moves fast, then agile can work, can work well if you have the right boundaries and the right guardrails in place. And the, the boundaries and the guardrails are typically going to be that clear strategic vision of where you're headed so that you can take these agile sprints and be going in the right direction and not heading off on the wrong track. So I appreciate everyone's feedback on the, on that question too. It's it's something I, I love getting feedback and just hearing the rationale and, and seeing what the diverse viewpoints are. Um, again, if we're not connected on LinkedIn, I highly encourage you, please please reach out, let's connect and uh, be, be part of this conversation. And if you have suggestions on questions that I pose to the group or the questions or topics you'd like to see me cover on this podcast, I'd love to hear your feedback. So that, that covers the Agile versus Waterfall discussion I wanted to have here today. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to bring on uh, Sarah Dokovic, who has been on past podcasts. She actually uh, co-hosts with me a sister podcast called Digital Stratosphere. Uh, in Parisa's absence, she's going to join today and, and conduct an interview with Wayne Holtham and Stuart Robb from uh, our third stage offices. Um, Wayne is actually uh, the head of our third stage Asia Pacific office in Brisbane, Australia. And Stuart is the head of our third stage Europe office in London, in the UK. So they're both going to be on the show talking to Sarah about this whole concept of digital transformation in merger and acquisition in private equity owned environments. So like I said before, at the beginning of the show, if you're a private equity owned company or you're a PE, you work for a PE firm or you have a PE portfolio that you're managing, or if you're an organization that is going through a lot of merger and acquisition type of activity, you're definitely going to want to hear this interview. And even if you're not an organization like that, if you're a high growth company or you're a company that is going through any sort of transformation, you're still going to get a lot of good nuggets of info uh, from this uh, discussion. So I encourage you to stick around for that. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Are you ready for transformation in 2021? Are you ready for change? Well, we want to help ensure that you're ready at Digital Stratosphere on April 20 through April 22nd. Digital Stratosphere is the only technology agnostic event of its kind, and we're bringing it to you digitally. This unique event is intended for anyone about to go through any sort of transformation, whether it be a digital transformation or a business transformation. This event is going to cover topics from experts ranging from strategy, to planning, to program management, to change management, to technology, everything you need to know to make your transformation successful in 2021 and beyond. And if you're one of the over 1,000 people that attended one of our past Digital Stratosphere events, this one promises to be bigger, better, and even more stratospheric. And the best part is that because this event coincides with Third Stage's three-year anniversary, we're providing the first day of keynote sessions to you with no registration fee. And if you would like to attend all three days of the conference, we've provided deep discounts to celebrate our three-year anniversary. So bring your entire team to Digital Stratosphere and get ready for transformation.
Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. Thanks for joining us here today. Uh, you can find us every Wednesday on YouTube at 10 a.m. Eastern Time in the United States, 3 p.m. London, 11 p.m. Hong Kong Time. You can also find us on all your typical podcast platforms. Uh, you can find us on uh, Apple, Google, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio. Wherever you listen to podcasts, please subscribe to us there. Give us a rating. Love to see your ratings and feedback in, in whatever app you're using. And of course, if you're not subscribed to me on YouTube or if you're watching this on YouTube, please be sure to subscribe. So uh, I'm going to shift gears a little bit now. We're going to bring on a couple guests, uh, three guests actually. Um, Sarah Dokovich uh, is going to interview uh, Wayne Holtham, who's the head of our Asia Pacific office in Brisbane, Australia, and Stuart Robb, who's the head of our uh, European office in London in the UK. Uh, both of them, in addition to managing global transformations for our client base, uh, they have experience with working with merger and acquisition types of companies, so organizations that are uh, going through mergers and acquisitions and or are private equity owned. So what we're going to do today is cover some of the things that you should be aware of if you're going through a transformation as a private equity owned or a merger and acquisition type of company. And even if you're not, there's some great nuggets of information we're going to cover here today that, that have universal appeal uh, to any sort of organization. So that being said, we're going to uh, turn it over to Wayne, Stewart, and Sarah. Um, guys, welcome to the show. Stuart, now we have some questions for you as well about more on the private equity and ERP kind of side of things. So I wanted to start at um, the 50,000 foot view and set the stage. So what is a private equity firm? Well, quite simply, Sarah, private equity is, um, refers to the capital uh, that's invested in firms that are privately owned. Um, so the difference between a publicly owned company is that the uh, companies own uh, the, the shareholders own it and you can publicly buy and sell shares in that company uh, with a private equity investment the uh, investors in the private equity are the owners of the company um, and so there's no publicly traded shares now the reason you that's that's seems to be better is because the private equity firms can uh, create more control over the investments that they make in the firms that they're buying. Uh, so typically a private equity firm would have a seat on the board um, and, and they may well wholly own or uh, own the majority of the company. And so they can much more tightly control how that company evolves um, and therefore the returns that they can make on it. And generally, uh, they think that private equity tends to outperform the uh, market compared to traded shares. So that's, that's why private equity exists. Um, there are a couple of kind of sub fields in private equity that you might have heard of. Um, one is venture capital, and that tends to be money that's put into new startup businesses to get them going and off the ground. And they tend to be longer term investments. And then the other is LBOs, which are leveraged buyouts. Um, and leveraged buyouts are where you've borrowed money from the market to go and buy a company that already exists. Uh, and then you take, it, take ownership of that. That might have been a private company already, uh, or it might be a publicly traded company uh, that's been taken private or a part of a larger organization that's been sold off and divested. So it's quite a wide field, but Broadly speaking, it's, it's basically the, the investment in private companies. Got it. Makes total sense. Now, 
when a private equity firm is looking to invest in a company, understanding the existing technology likely plays a large role in their decision to invest. So how does the process usually work? Well, it's quite interesting, actually. And we are seeing a, a little bit of a shift. Um, the private equity houses have tended in the past to do the deal and then worry about the technology after they've closed. Um, and that's left some PE firms with some quite big headaches to sort out. And so what we have been seeing actually over the last couple of years is private equity investors taking a much more uh, close scrutiny of an acquisition targets technology estate to see how fit for purpose it is and how easy it is to get it going to be in terms of the new code that they that they create um, because uh, you know some of these uh, technological reinvestments now are you know pretty expensive and can actually affect the profitability of the deal when do you want to add anything to that it looked like you wanted to say something <laughs> You're yeah, more than welcome to chime in. <laughs> it's interesting. The technology piece has been a challenge for when you when someone takes over or is purchasing um, an organisation as such. Taking, you know, they want to get the value out of that organisation, and technology plays a big part in that. And and the announcement that we talked about with um, with uh, Signavio and SAP, it it allows it probably takes the pain out of that and probably puts um, uh, softwares like SAP probably. Uh, higher in priority for companies who are looking to say, well, I can now have a bit more comfort that what we do, we understand. Whereas before, as like as Stuart, Stuart mentioned, you know, you buy something and you hope it's going to work and not always is that the case. And that's where some of those headaches probably would have come from. Yeah, and I think the other thing as well that's quite interesting, I mean, pre-close on any of these deals, obviously you've got the lawyers crawling all over it, um, but your access to what really goes on inside the, um, the acquisition target is really pretty limited. Um, and they, you know, there are all sorts of regulations and requirements for data rooms and things like that that are all uh, put in place um, you know, to try and give you as much information as you can, but without disclosing the secret source of the company, I suppose, if you if you want to do that. But traditionally, it's been very much a financially driven thing. You know, the lawyers and the due diligence would be all about the the sales and the revenue numbers and the contractual liabilities. But it is becoming more common for them to be more inquisitive about the um, the, the the other sort of technological aspects, and that's particularly true um, because in many cases, if you, unless you're doing an outright purchase of a business. Um, you're going to be on some form of transitional service arrangement whilst you extract that business from its parent. Um, and so understanding how that parent can service that business um, and working out what your plan is to extract that business has become you know, quite a significant cost in the overall terms of the deal. Um, and the lawyers tend not to have much experience about how much that costs or how long that takes. And so you get TSAs that are frequently too short uh, and haven't built in sufficient money to build the new architecture. We've, we, we're have we seeing it less now, but we've seen a couple of deals where the amount of money and the amount of time um, put into a deal to get onto a new platform was just simply not even close to uh, the truth. Wow. 
So interesting. And let's um, kind of go off of that as well. I wanted to ask you, like, what are the key indicators that they should be looking for when evaluating the health of a company's existing ERP system and whether a need for a digital transformation will fall in the window of their investment? Yeah, uh, uh, I mean, the digital transformation thing is interesting um, because particularly when an, a, a PE firm is doing a straight purchase, um, the temptation is that once they've done the purchase, the business is already running. Um, and so, you know, we'll just let, leave it to grow and take our investment out in five years. Um, and that some organizations tend to shy away from trying to optimize that business too much because they're worried about the risk of restructuring. They're worried about the ERP project going wrong. They're worried about the people um, and the change that Wayne was talking about. And so you, you always get a, a, a bit of timidity in the, the way that the PE firm takes it. And again, we're seeing that change because with the advances in technology now with robotic process automation and where we are with some of the automation in ERPs, um, if you don't take that opportunity to re-engineer and restructure the business to take advantage of some of this, you're going to be carrying a well, it's, it's lost profit. You're going to be carrying a company that is less profitable than the amount of money you could take out of it at the end. And of course, when you do come to divest from it and you do come to sell it, whoever's going to buy it's going to look at the same aspects and go, well, that technology is 15 years out of date. So they're going to put a lower value on that business. And if they've got a really slick, really lean comparative organization that you know has has some you know, recent leading edge practices and technologies sitting behind it. Yeah. So you talked about um, KPIs or key, um, key indicators. Um, there are a few ways that you can get a feel for how good a company's ERP is um, without necessarily knowing every single thing about it. Um, and so when you're early in the process and you're kind of going through this whole data room process, um, there are a few questions you can ask, like, um, can you tell me the profitability by product line? And if it's a good company with a good ERP and a good reporting mechanism and a good CRM and, 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 they, are, they will be able to provide that answer to you pretty quickly you know, they will be able to turn that answer around either in a couple of hours or a couple of days. If after a week that you're still struggling to get an answer, you know, there's one of two reasons. They're either arguing with the lawyers about disclosing the information or they're covering up for the fact that they can't actually produce it because their ERP doesn't give it to them. Mm -hmm. And so th th those kind of inquisitive questions um, can help to pull out how good it is. I mean, um, uh, a couple of uh, other examples, you know, can you give me your 3PL costs and how you've optimized your distribution network? Um, and again, if they've got a good transport management platform, that information is pretty easy to draw out because you can just run a couple of reports and out it comes. If they don't, uh, you know, they will probably try and hedge the answer to the question. So those are indicatively, you know, just in one uh, dimension, 
um, some questions that you can throw into the ring that will start to give you, um, you know, a, a feel for um, uh, where that they, they might be leading edge and they might be, you know, um, very mature or they might be, you know, trailing edge and, uh, you know, pretty basic in, in, in their operation. Absolutely. Asking the, the right questions can get you some of those right answers, which is awesome. And assume that a PE firm has its eye on a particular company that could use a new software system to help optimize operations. Could a digital transformation be a strategy used by PE investors to improve and grow the business? Or is it seen as a red flag that makes investors want to run the other direction? Um, again, I, I think if you went back five years, the investors wouldn't even ask the question. Uh, they'd buy the company and then found out what a bag of bolts it was, you know, usually a few weeks after they'd closed. Um, and I think the, that you know, they're, they're pushing their, um, uh, the, this much further up the agenda, much earlier in the conversation. Um, I, I wouldn't have said that um, there is never an opportunity for digital transformation because if you're taking over a company, and particularly if that company has been ingrained in a large organization, or if um, you know, that company hasn't changed its ERP or its subsidiary systems for uh, a number of years, you're going to get inherent inefficiencies as Wayne was talking about in terms of process engineering. And so there is always money to be had out of that re-engineering process. You know, if you can put in uh, accounts payable automation, you might be able to reduce your accounts payable headcount. But if you only pay 20 invoices a month, well, then that's not worth looking at, you know, look, look somewhere else. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, it can be seen as a red flag. And um, in fact, I was involved with um, a, a very large um, PE deal uh, a number of years ago where um, the company that I was involved in bought another company that had off another private equity firm. Mm -hmm. And that private equity firm had basically accumulated a number of companies. And rather than doing any optimization of those companies um, or harmonization of those systems, they just left it, didn't touch it. And what they ended up with was eight plates worth of spaghetti with data flying all over this organization that was almost virtually impossible to unpick and so when the company that i was involved with bought this nightmare of course then it became accountable for having to try to pull apart all this mess uh, and put it back together again now should they have bought the company yes i mean the financials made sense um, but there was a huge cost in terms of um, unpicking this technical architecture and then getting it onto something that would work that hadn't been factored into the whole evaluation. And so, you know, that became a real millstone around the business for several years while they tried to sort it all out. Oh, wow. Wayne, did you want to add or have anything else to add to that? Yeah, well, I think probably as, as Stuart talked about, part of the this, this uh, uh, thing of buying companies, it's now having, it's probably making technology easier 
to actually understand what you have. And so, you know, it may actually change the way that companies do actually look at uh, equity, private equity and ventures and those sorts of things, because they can get some of those insights up front in the due diligence if they, if they frame it that way. And that allows them then to say, well, here's how much we would pay based on knowing this. Whereas in the past, it's like Stuart said, it's a bit of an educated guess from financials that you know might lead you to believe it's a good company, but not considering the fact that you might have to spend a lot to actually get that company to either either improve or maintain those financials. And so, uh, so you know, these the, the changes are happening in the space where it, it's more of informed understanding in the due diligence piece, as against well, let's hope it's right. And I think that's what uh, Stuart sort of talked about. Yeah, it's, it makes, can make a huge difference down, like, down the road as well, I'm sure. And in your private equity investors playbook, you mentioned that a key feature from an ERP perspective um, is that the ERP solution, or at least the data and processes, need to be separated from the parent organization. So what are the different approaches a private equity firm might take to complete that separation? So thank you, Sarah, for mentioning my book. It is yeah. free of charge, available for download, not at your local bookstore, but on the third stage website, plug, plug, plug. And it's all for free as well. Um, free is so, the best price. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, yes, so I wrote a private equity investors playbook because I did feel that there's still quite a range of knowledge in the different private equity firms that I have dealt with. Um, and it's quite interesting that um, a lot of the PE firms uh, go to tier one consulting firms, um, you know, to get their uh, M&A advisory. Um, and surprising how in some of the, you know, some of the outcomes from that tier one really hasn't given them the insights that they ought to have got from an independent advisory, you know, who looks at technical architecture. So I think I thought there was a gap, really, partly in the in in what the PEs were expecting from their tier ones, but partly also from their own knowledge that you know was was creating a gap that they weren't able to um, plug. And so the purpose of me writing the book was really just to try and be a ready reckoner or something for them to get a. Their, their head around um, so that you know they'd be able to, to to go in and ask a few difficult questions themselves um, of these of their potential acquisitions um, to give a, a bit of a, a, an early warning sign. So you said what are the different approaches? Well um, the first is a straight purchase which is um, obviously where all the assets come with the company that you've acquired including the ERP and including all the people to run it. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the assets that you bought are very good. Um, and so again, uh, having bought the asset, you might find that the ERP is on some piece of software that you know long ago stopped being supported and only 10 people in the whole world know how to use um, and none of them are in the company that you've just bought. Now you're smiling, but this is true. I mean, I'm not, making this up, this is a real example. I'm just not going to mention the company concern. Um, uh, but there is an immediate imperative to get off of that platform because it is impeding the business's ability to move forward. It can't make um, the 
uh, it can't leverage its data, it can't leverage its value proposition um, because the ERP simply won't let it. And mm -hmm. so that would be a typical example where you do it even in a straight purchase, you do some form of business transformation or business re-engineering and uh, uh, underpinned by technology change in order to uplift and drive optimization and efficiency in that company. The second uh, approach um, is uh, a separation or um, could be a carve out or it might be a spin split, the various um, kind of uh, transaction types. Um, but broadly speaking, this is where typically you would buy a division of a larger company um, and that would then be separated out and it would become a standalone company and you'd have 12 months where you would have a transitional service arrangement with the parent and at the end of that 12 months you'd be able to kind of stand on your own two feet just kind of likening it to you know your teenage son or daughter leaving home right they're still going to go into the bank of mum and dad for 12 months and they're still going to need to be driven around everywhere and after 12 months mum and dad need a rest want to go on holiday and so the teenage gets told to get to get on with it um so there are two types of um of a well, there are lots of types i mean i i'm i'm massively over generalizing but just mm -hmm. to try and make this simple um there are two types of uh, approach you can take in a carve out one is called a clone and go and the other one is a new instance now clone and go basically says what we're going to do is we are going to take um, a copy of all of your systems in the parent and we're going to set those up as a copy in our new company and then we're going to crack on and we'll basically be operating the same systems and the same network the same infrastructure sorry the same data uh, and create the same reports as we did before now that's all very well um, but that doesn't come uh, without a price and there's a butcher's bill to be paid for that. Mm. First of all, um, unpicking all the systems that you don't want or need in a clone and go can be a nightmare because of the way data weaves around a large organization. So if you were doing a real proper clone and go, you take a copy of all of the systems that created that cohesive architecture, but 30% of them you might not need. The second problem with a clone and go is one of size, because if the parent was a, 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 a FTSE 100 or a Fortune 500 company, and the division that you've taken is 500 people, then putting in six instances of SAP and Workday and Salesforce and 1500 other applications, would be completely overkill and eye-wateringly expensive. And so whatever you'd save on having to re-implement a solution uh, and what you'd save on retraining, you would spend tenfold on software licenses and infrastructure and all the rest of it. Um, uh, so cloning goes actually are not that common. They, they tend to be used only where for example, uh, 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 I don't know, let's just say, say a pharmaceutical company decided to split into two, you know, a European Union pharma company and a 
UK pharma company to be a bit topical. Um, and that because those entities would be roughly equally sized at the out at the end um, uh, from the split from the whole, then doing a clone and go would actually be a pretty good solution because they're all huge anyway. So SAP is the only place they can go. More commonly, however, um, whatever you've carved out will be a relatively small entity out of a larger whole. Not, not always, but you know, if you are talking about a five billion pound company, maybe the company that you've bought is a half a billion pounds. And in that instance, then you'll almost certainly want to look at a new instance because the new instance is going to be smaller and cheaper than your big SAP platform. But also it's going to give you the opportunity to optimize your new business and your new processes against a smaller platform. So it's going to force a change in terms of processes that wouldn't necessarily be forced if you were just cloning. Um, and then the third uh, avenue of um, separation is what's called a spin merge. Um, and I've done two spin merges and they are difficult. Um, and the reason they're difficult is because what you're trying to do there is you're taking a company from the parent and then you're trying to subsume that company into a company that either you already own or another company that you're buying. So you end up with two moving parts at once that you're trying to meld together um, without knowing before you close precisely what each of those moving parts looks like. Um, and so uh, in terms of the kind of risk profile, um, a spin merge is without any shadow of a doubt, the, the most complex of transactions. Um, and um, we've seen, as I said, I've done a, a reasonably smallish sort of 100 million pound mark one, and I've done a, God knows how many, what it was, a five, six, seven billion dollar one. Um, and the, the challenges of trying to do one of that kind of scales, 15 to 20,000 people uh, in a time scale that's being dictated by the transitional service arrangement. Because don't forget the parent is going to cut you off and you know, send you to university and leave you on your own. So you're under real time pressure. Um, and so trying to do that is, is a really, really significant challenge. And um, so spin merges, because they're the most complex, are the ones that we generally recommend have the longest TSA arrangements, just because there's so many moving parts in that, there's more that can go wrong. Yeah, so it sounds like there's a lot for investors to consider when it comes to a company's digital platform, for sure. And as technology advances and continues building its prominence in business practices, the digital and technolo technological health of a company's operations will continue as one of the drivers in investment decisions. So when we come back from a quick break, Stuart, Wade and I, we're going to dive into what it takes to fully uphold an existing software and undergo a digital transformation. Give me the sense to wonder, to wonder if I'm free. 
If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with uh, Sarah Dokovich, Stuart Robb, and Wayne Holtham. We're talking about private equity and merger and acquisition-related digital transformations and ERP implementations. Uh, before we jump back into the conversation, though, I'll turn it back over to Sarah here in a second to continue the conversation. Uh, some of the observations I have just from a, a private equity perspective and some of my experience working with, with PE firms and uh, high growth and merger and acquisition types of situations um, some some things stand out. I mean, when I've been in these situations in the past, um, most of these organizations are really trying to move their culture, or bend the needle, so to speak, or, or swing the pendulum from being a you know fully decentralized, independently operated type of organization to more of a standard operating model, common business processes, um, you know, common culture, just moving to more of a standardized, centralized type of environment that could involve shared services, you know, for your uh, HR department, your IT department, your accounting and finance functions, that sort of thing. And really, it just seems that a lot of these M&A types of situations or PE-owned firms that are going through transformation end up finding that they have a lot of value that they've left on the table. And, and that's why they're hiring us oftentimes is to help them figure out how to get value out of all these acquisitions they've made, it, helping them get value out of the... Um, economies of scale and synergies that they could be getting uh, from from being a larger organization and really just helping them act as a larger organization. Um, and, and it doesn't mean large, you know, Fortune 500 necessarily. It could be a, you know, a $50 million company that's growing to $100 million or $200 million in revenue. It, it doesn't necessarily need to be a mass scale. But in general, companies that hire us with PE firms or M&A types of um, situations they're typically looking for that sort of common business process. They're looking for that commonality. Um, there's exceptions to that. I mean, there's cases where organizations will come in and say, hey, we've acquired all these companies, and for the most part, we want to remain independent, but here's some select things that we want to centralize or consolidate um, just as a way to, to increase value. Or it could be that, hey, you know, we just want to stay decentralized, but also be able to cross-pollinate and cross-sell products or services or cross-pollinate resources internally. So there's a lot of different paths you can take with these M&A and, and PE uh, types of situations. But I think the key is that, you know, we just need to understand from the organization what it is they're trying to accomplish with their their longer term objectives with the acquisitions and with the mergers and with the, you know, the PE focus that they they tend to have. So those are, you know, some of the, the main findings that, that, that I've seen. And then the other big observation I have from these sorts of situations is that organizational change management ends up becoming even more important than your normal transformation uh, because typically now you've got 
organizations that had been acquired or they'd become part of another, you know, a larger organization, uh, or they're just going through some sort of massive change that's, that's pretty significant, even more than what the average company goes through. So for that reason, or for those reasons, organizational change management becomes even more important. And so really making sure that we have the right approach, the right strategy, we're addressing the people side of the equation, we're defining a clear future state of what the organization is going to look like and what roles and responsibilities are going to be. That whole piece of it is really important, can be very time consuming, but very important time spent on making sure you have that clear vision of what do we need to do organizationally, what do we want to move toward, and what is our roadmap to get us there, and, and then ultimately, what's our change strategy to help bring the people along. So those are a couple of things that, that come to mind when I hear Stuart and Rob talking about, or Stuart and Wayne talking about this stuff with with uh, Sarah. Um, those are some of the things that come to mind. So. Um, I know Sarah's got a bunch more questions for Stuart and Wayne, so I'm going to turn it back to you, Sarah, and we'll pick up some of the discussion you were having about private equity, merger and acquisition types of organizations that are going through digital transformation. So back to you, Sarah. I'm Sarah Dogovich speaking with Stuart and Wayne from Third Stage Consulting, discussing everything a private equity investor needs to know about a company's digital health before diving into an investment. All right, so let's pivot into a bit um, of a discussion undergoing a full digital transformation in the lifespan of a PE firm's involvement in an organization. What are the key points that a PE firm should be aware of if they choose to invest in a company that is ready for a full digital transformation? Um, the full digital transformation can mean a lot of things to a lot of people and um, when we're talking about digital transformation in this context, how I think of it is really a business transformation that's underpinned by technological change. Um, it, it really depends on what platform or what approach you're going to take as to how you're going to go about that business re-engineering. Um, we talked about Clone and Go before the break, and we talked about how that broadly speaking would retain those processes as is and that wouldn't require retraining, but you'd lose the opportunity to optimize the business by re-engineering the processes. Um, so, you know, you might think that the natural answer is, well, as soon as we've got that company, we should just embark on a, uh, a, a digital transformation and we should get a new ERP in and we should get all our processes in. Um, but that might not be the optimal way of doing it because um, you, you, you know, if you're not on a TSA, then you'd actually letting that company bed in a bit under its new ownership, taking a bit more time to look at how the business runs, what the key metrics of the business are, what the business drivers are, where there's um, waste and possibilities for optimization is a kind of a more considered approach than just charging in and transforming the business and, and kind of, I was going to say making it up as you go along, but you know, trying to find the opportunities as you go. If you're on a TSA, then your timescale is driven for you. And so you really have to try and pick out um, where, you, where, is, where is the sweet spot of optimization in terms, of, as opposed to trying to do too much in a transformation when you're under time pressure. Um, and I think um, we had a podcast last week where James Hayward, um, who is actually one of our clients, 
did a transformation in James uh, Defence Weekly. And that was really interesting um, because um, um, th that, that they had to build an organisation from scratch. So it wasn't a question of they had to do a digital transformation. They didn't have a business. They didn't have accounts payable. They didn't have um, accounts receivable. They had to go and hire the people and put the technology in whilst they were hiring the people and build the processes whilst they were hiring people and develop the policies and the security and the governance and risk and compliance whilst they were recruiting the people. And that's hard because, you know, if, if you don't know what you want this to look like at the end, it's very hard to tell any kind of systems integrator or value-added reseller, I want it configured like this because you're kind of building it up as you go and so um it it doesn't necessarily follow that you as you know the day after you've closed a transaction you should be firing off a business transformation but conversely your time scales might dictate that that's what you have to do because otherwise you just run out of time yeah totally wayne did you want to add anything into that yeah, well, it's, it's interesting you say that, Stuart, because, you know, with, with the way uh, you now can get that insight into <coughs> systems and processes, you almost could say, well, let me cherry pick the processes I need to improve to get that value. Whereas before you had to be uh, probably a little bit concerned that you, would, you didn't know what you were venturing into. So, so it made sense to actually sit and wait and, and try and get a feel of the business. Whereas you now could actually um overlay uh, one of those process mining tools to be able to say well this process here really does need some work and, and we now have the ability to work on that piece so it takes away the need for a whole transformation more of a you know a, a, an evolution to improvement sort of thing yeah targeted improvement yeah i completely agree with yeah and in what scenario would a company be better off implementing a best of breed erp versus a single erp solution um, the holy grail of every company is to have a single ERP solution. Um, and why is that? Because it's all nicely in one package. All of the integrations have already been worked out for you. You've got one supplier with one throat to choke if something goes wrong. Um, and the width of knowledge and training and change and process complexity is minimized by having everything in one ERP. So, you know, every company would love if there was the fantastic all singing, all dancing um, package out there that would do everything perfectly for a company, then that company would have, you know, probably bitten the vendor's arm off. The problem is that all packages are not equal. Mm. So I could be an S4 HANA, um, client and I might be very happy with S4 HANA for my manufacturing and for my materials management and my potency management but it simply isn't good enough for my marketing and my CRM and so I would have to go to Salesforce and Perito or similar to do my um, marketing and CRM and then I might go well do you know what the Salesforce e-commerce is pretty good but Magneto uh, sorry, keep doing that. So what you might find is that um, they say, well, my Salesforce um, is 
uh, you know, um, good enough uh, and really nice in the marketing space, but it's e-commerce is just not what I need. Um, so, you know, I might then go to Magento and say, right, I need this really good uh, e-commerce platform. And you can do that all the way down the stack. So you can end up with Salesforce, CR Salesforce marketing, Salesforce CRM, uh, Magneto e-commerce, uh, Blue Jay transport management, uh, Blue Yonder warehouse management. And so you get on a whole plethora of different packages, which are best breed packages, depending on the need of your business. So there's a tension between having the very simple ERP that has everything all in its one box and having the very best of every layer of the application, even right the way down to HR and sort of uh, systems like Workday and, and, so, and so forth. Um, you know, that give you all of the bells and singing, dancing whistles. Mm -hmm. I don't think singing, dancing whistles is a thing, but anyway. Hey, um, now, now it is. <laughs> now it is, yeah, we've invented something new then. Um, so uh, when we go in, what we try to do when we look at an investment is to see how much of that business has um, complexity or a unique value proposition. So something that makes it differentiating from other industries in its sector. And we tend to focus on that. So um, if we don't get a lot of um, accounts payable transactions in a, in a month, uh, if we don't have a big problem with accounts receivable and our day sales outstanding is pretty low, then we won't look beyond the ERP to perform those functions. Whereas if we have huge um, uh, uh, number of supplier invoices coming in, then we definitely look at AP automation. So something like Ariba for SAP or Proactis or uh, Cooper um, for supplier management and supplier portals and self-service and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, again, in AR, you know, um, High Radius or Carivo or... Um, uh, any one of those uh, kind of products. I think Blackline um, just bought a product as well in the um, in the accounts receivable space. Um, uh, those would it would be good when you've got a big accounts receivable problem, um, but if you just have you know 15 days DSO and you have you know 500 customers, the overhead and cost of having that high radius or Carivo capability, the licenses, the additional configuration, the additional training, and on and on and on it goes, just wouldn't be worth it. So almost by an application layer, you're doing a micro business case to say, is the ERP good enough or do we need to go outside of the ERP and look for a specialist piece of software that can provide that function? And the way I kind of characterize it is an ERP is averagely good at everything. Yeah, so if I want to take my kids up to um, the zoo or something, then I need a car with five seats and an estate car because it needs a boot, um, you know, and it should be reasonably economical and yada, yada, yada. Now, if I'd gone and bought a Ferrari, then that would be hopeless if I've got a wife and two kids because the two kids haven't got anywhere to sit and there's nowhere to put the packed lunch and there's nowhere to, you know, and on and on and on it goes. So, you know, your 
your MPV or your Range Rover or whatever is going to be your good day-to-day -day kids car. But if you want to go and do track days, well, then you need your Ferrari or your Porsche or something like that. And so that's how we kind of think about the architecture and we look at the end state. Awesome. Well explained. Appreciate that. And when implementing new software and migrating from the old solution to the new solution, one of the biggest challenges is likely data migration. So what are some best practices or even key considerations to keep in mind when you embark on the data migration segment of the transformation? Uh, there's only one thing in data migration that's start immediately. Mm -hmm. um, it always takes more time than you think it's going to. Uh, it always is more problematic. Getting data out of SAP from a legacy system, making sure it's your data, um, and then transforming it into data that your new uh, new co can use uh, is never a smooth process, um, and it needs to be done and rehearsed and reloaded and retransformed over and over and over and over and over and over again through the life cycle of the project before it's actually safe to load it. So a typical good example would be, uh, you know, um, a, a PE company I, I did some work for a few years ago. So yeah, we're gonna just take a copy of the data um, from the parent and we're gonna load that and that'll be fine. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, oh, you know, yeah, we've looked into it. I, I knew that that was the kiss of death. As soon as they said, yes, we've looked into it, I knew they hadn't. Um, and um, so I said, right, so um, you got the Northampton warehouse as part of the deal, haven't you? And they said, yes, um, right, but have you got the, I can't remember where it was, Weybridge or no, it wasn't Weybridge, it was something beginning with Weymouth warehouse. Um, and they said, no. And I said, right, so all of that data that's going to come across every time it refers to the Weymouth warehouse is going to blow up because there is no Weymouth warehouse or you're gonna have Weymouth Warehouse in the new system and people are still gonna be able to select Weymouth Warehouse as a place to send goods for storage or whatever, except that it won't be your Weymouth Warehouse because there is no Weymouth Warehouse. So you've got to take Weymouth Warehouse out of the reference data, but you've also got to take it out of all the transactional data because all the stuff that is currently in Weymouth Warehouse is gonna to have to move somewhere else. So where's it moving to? And it's that point that the penny started to drop that you can't not touch data. And data permeates through an entire ecosystem of an organization. And this becomes especially true, true when you're trying to think about reporting. So what you're going to do is you're going to rip half the heart or a quarter of the heart out of a company. And so all of the veins and stick it in something else. So all of the veins and arteries and all of that mm -hmm. are all going to be, you know, a, a subset of what they were. Um, but you're not going to have all of that full data necessarily that you had before. Are you carrying across all of your historical and archive data that will still drive your reports to work? What happens if you don't take system X from the parent and system X was providing you with data Y that fed all of these reports. All of those reports are now going to break. Mm -hmm. And in fact, what we usually recommend is actually forget any of the reports you used to get 
Tell us what the key drivers of your business are. Tell us what the key data attributes are that inform those key drivers and start a new reporting architecture from scratch. Interesting. What about you, Wayne? Do you have any kind of uh, considerations to add on? Yeah, totally agree there, Stuart. I think the other big challenge is, is that when we come from old systems, we are very fixed on structured data. And, and so structured data is structured in a certain way. And uh, when, we, when we overlay a new company in there, we may have different structures or different ways we actually want to view that. And so the ability to be able to access that data to, as Stuart talks about reporting, actually even transact is quite limited. And so it's almost like you need to consider the, uh, the you know, some of the newer technology where you're actually building things like data lakes and those sort of things, because the data in there can actually be unstructured and you actually just access the information you need as against needing the total data construct to actually leverage that off. And so, so it's about thinking about what, what you want in your reporting and what information you need differently and how you can actually access that because the old way of structured data makes it very limited, very hard. It's like having a bookshelf where, you know, all the books are in a certain way and you're the new company, you like them another way. Uh, it, you know, and the sizes don't match and those sort of things. It's, it's, it's quite a complex area when we talk about data, data migration, historical data, uh, and, and our access to it moving forward. Absolutely. And how have you and your team helped private equity firms, especially during their transformations? And do you guys happen to have any success stories that stand out that you are able to share with us? Well, uh, all of the companies that I've ever been involved in, in M&A are still trading. So I think that's possibly a success story. I'm not quite sure how much of a success <laughs> page, but, uh, <laughs> but um, I mean, uh, I've been doing M&A for quite a long time. Um, obviously, with third stage, it's more recent. We've been going only um, for the last uh, sort of year, uh, coming up to 18 months now, actually, in Europe. Um, but even then, I mean, we've done... Um, James Defence Weekly, which, um, as I mentioned earlier, James Hayward, who was the CFO, was on our podcast last week with Eric talking about that. So I won't bore you to death too much with repeating all of the, um, the work of James. Um, but that was a carve out uh, from a big uh, publishing company, IHS Market, an old SAP system, uh, legacy, uh, that had itself been merged. Um, because uh, IHS and market merged and then they divested themselves of James um, and so all of those issues around you know trying to get the data out trying to get it clean um, uh, were significant trying to develop a ERP when there were no people to talk to about it you know there was no what there was no AR manager there was no AEP manager that hadn't been recruited yet so all of those were you know those typical sort of challenges that we, that we have to face into. Um, another one we did um, with a, a, a PE organization was a car, carve out from Kodak, actually. Um, they do lithographic printing, uh, multinational. Um, they got manufacturing in, in Japan um, and China and uh, they retail across the world. Um, and uh, that was interesting because um, they, again, coming from another SAP um, monolith, uh, that was an SAP system that I think the Noah had in the Ark. Um, uh, but um, uh, we got them onto 
M4, M3. Um, very uh, proud to say that M4, M3 does finally been proven to work. Um, so really good news there. Um, but it actually went very well. And um, I, uh, M4 can be a bit tricky to get in successfully. Um, but it shows that there's actually nothing wrong with that product. It's a very good product, very good in manufacturing. Uh, demand, pan demand planning is very good in it, um, you know, all around the implementation management. Um, and we were very lucky in that, that um, the CIO who uh, ran that for the PE company, very experienced, very good guy, and really kept a cast iron grip on it. Um, the other thing we did at Code, uh, the carve out, Codec as well, which is quite interesting. We got very heavily involved in the contracts um, uh, because the CIO wanted watertight contracts and he wanted to know what good looked like. So a lot of the advisory that we gave early in the process was around contract benchmarking, what have companies got in other organizations, what terms and conditions, what are they supposed to be paying, you know, and without breaching any confidentialities, we can, you know, say, yes, we think that's a good deal, or no, we think there's more to go in that. Um, and that was a real benefit to, to this organization, you know, they got real value out of um, having that clarity on cost, uh, and actually being able to manage that cost very, very tightly, which astonishingly meant that it came in on budget and on time which is almost unheard of for any ERP project um, uh, and then um, we I did an out uh, uh, worked with a company which was an outright acquisition of a travel management company um, I worked at a software company that bought another multi-billion dollar software company about three years ago um, <clears throat> And um, that was a real challenge, that just enormous undertaking. Um, and uh, so that was, that was a, a very interesting project to work on, but I think it probably uh, aged my life by 10 years and six months on that. In fact, I'm only 21, all this gray hair is just a result of that project. Uh, and we're working on one now. Um, so um, in fact, it closes, on um, Monday um, and so uh, we've been working with this organization on the future state architecture um, and the due diligence process on the architecture uh, this is a spin merge so my least favorite or my most favorite actually because they're the most interesting and the most difficult but there are also ones that give you the biggest heart problems um, but this one this one's in the UK education sector large ish combined company will be a largish company um, and so um, that will be an exciting year's worth of work for third stage to help support this uh, endeavor going forward. Amazing. Well, you guys are doing incredible things. Absolutely. Keep going. And I wanted to thank you both for being here. So if our listeners wanted to learn more about the best practices around mergers and acquisitions, what are some resources that you might suggest for them? Read my book. <laughs> yeah, read the book. Um, I, I, as I said, there are there's lots and lots and lots and lots on M and A, um, and you know you, the bookshelves worth of stuff on Amazon. Um, I mean, I used to work at EY, and so you know I was involved in that 
a little bit when when during my time at EY, which is about 20 years ago now. Um, but very little about technology in M&A. And that's why I said I think that is a gap that hasn't been, you know, well explained to PE companies. And so hopefully what, what we've done in third stage with this podcast and with this little free, um, I was going to call it a booklet, but it is actually about 48 pages. So there's quite a lot of content in it. Um, but, uh, you know, with this playbook, um, hopefully it will give um, some people some insights into uh, into what to look out for and some key questions that they can ask and some thinking around how we go about looking at what the future state for a spin merge or a carve out looks like. Amazing. Well, Stuart, Wayne, it's been so real. You have shared so many insights today. So I really appreciate both of your times today. Thank you, Sarah. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Of course. All right. Thanks very much, Sarah and Stuart and Wayne. Thanks for that conversation. That was really interesting. Um, I love a lot of that stuff you guys were talking about. You covered the whole spectrum of some of the things you need to be thinking about as part of a transformation, not just for merger and acquisition situations or private equity firms, but really any organization that's going through uh, a transformation of any sort. Um, that That's a, a big uh, a takeaway here. So I appreciate you guys being here. Uh, we'll look forward to having you back on the show here soon. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about who should be owning digital transformation within your organization. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back and take more Q&A from our audience. We'll be right back. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. We'll be right back. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find us every Wednesday on YouTube, uh, 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. London, 11 p.m. Hong Kong Time. Um, you can also find us on all the usual uh, podcast platforms. And I also encourage you to follow me on social media. If you're not connected with me on LinkedIn, um, Instagram, if you're on Clubhouse, I'm on Clubhouse now. I encourage you to, to follow me wherever you um, consume your social media. But those are the main three that I, I engage with as well as uh, Twitter as well. Uh, it's a distant fourth, but I still am involved with Twitter. Um, but it's certainly if you're on Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, or Clubhouse, that's where I'm, I'm most active as well as YouTube. Uh, obviously, that's probably the, the most common one. So uh, speaking of social media, we've got another question here that I posed uh, a few days ago as well. Another question that got a lot of good responses, a lot of diverse opinions. So this question we posed on social media is related to who should own a digital transformation, who within the organization should be responsible for it, who should set the strategy and the direction, who's ultimately accountable and responsible for making sure it's successful. And oftentimes it's assumed that it's IT, um, oftentimes it's assumed that it's someone in operations and, you know, there's a, a lot of different people that can own a project. 
And so uh, really what, what framed this question was a, uh, a study that I included a graphic for in this post. And it was a study that, that asked organizations who was leading their digital transformation. And the study was uh, commissioned by APQC. If, if you go to apqc.org, um, you can see a lot of their, their research out there, but they're a nonprofit um, industry and technology agnostic firm, a lot like Third Stage, um, although they're more of an analyst firm, we're obviously transformation consulting, but they do a lot of good research that, that is interesting. And this particular study asked the question of, you know, who owns the transformation within your organization? And 20%, which was the biggest response, 20% said IT owned it. Uh, 18% said their corporate strategy group owned it. Uh, 17.5% said they had a transformation office that owned it. And then 12% said that they had uh, some sort of executive suite that owned it. And then last, you know, the last uh, or the least common uh, response here was uh, 8% said that it was a standalone program or center of excellence. So not to say that any of these are right or wrong or you know those are the, the way you should be thinking about it. It's pretty evenly distributed. So it doesn't really give you a good sense of what the quote unquote right answer is. So I pose the question of you know most digital transformation and ERP initiatives are still led by the IT function. Should they be led by other internal groups instead? That was the way I framed it. And then I included a, a link or a, a, a graphic that showed these uh, survey results. And we got some really good responses here. Uh, Eric Martins, who's someone I've been connected to for a long time, he responded with, the only required process is the process of ongoing structured conversations where the relationship is the container which holds this together. Uh, with, with every, within every organizational and operational environment, within every transaction, an individual should be able to open an automated line with the owner of the space. Uh, this conversational process can be automated and triggered within a structured and automated environment where, where users can come up with their thoughts, ideas, feelings, actions, etc. So I think what he's saying is more of a collaborative uh, sort of approach with, with different, different stakeholders um, that are involved in making sure that um, they're, they're collaborating and, and creating a, a shared purpose for what the, the transformation is. Um, Another uh, response here is from Mark DiGiorgio, I believe is how you pronounce it. And I, I may be butchering that and I apologize if I am Mark, uh, but he responded with, unless you have a unicorn IT leader, in my opinion, they should be led by the business, but IT needs to be a key stakeholder in the decision process and implementation process. Otherwise, without their voice heard, good luck trying to get support when it comes to rollout data integration, or I'm sorry, data migration, integration, et cetera. And that's a great response. That's probably the one that's most aligned with the way I think about it as far as what IT's role should be and who all should own this sort of project. Um, generally, uh, we find that um, organizations that, that have IT running the project typically aren't going to be as successful as the ones that have business running the project. Uh, you really need that business ownership and that clear vision of what this means from a business perspective and also because you need the business to own it just to be successful from a resourcing and a business process and a organizational impact, organizational ownership perspective. You, you need the uh, different parts of the business to, to own the project. But at the same time, you need IT to support. You can't really do this without IT. IT should absolutely be involved. But I think the key here is you don't want to just pass it off to the CIO or to the IT director and he or his or her uh, project teams and assume that they'll just get it done. You really need someone from the business that can own that as well. And ideally, um, you have IT that's part of that project team that's led by the business, certainly either 
at the project delivery level, or sometimes we'll see situations where the executive sponsor is from the business side. So you might have someone like a CFO or a COO that's the executive sponsor. Then you've got the project team below that includes IT, but it also includes a lot of people from the business. So a few different ways you can you can tackle that. But I think in general, uh, you know, there are some CIOs I've worked with that are very business savvy and they, they actually came from operations or they know the business inside and out. They're not super technical, so they can see the bigger picture. Those types of IT leaders are, I think, are okay, or that's a perfectly fine uh, owner of the project. But most organizations don't have that type of person. Most people have a CIO that kind of grew up in the traditional IT world. They know technology very well. Um, they know how to support the organization from an IT perspective. They're going to be a key stakeholder uh, in the transformation, but they're not always necessarily the one that should be uh, owning the project or the one leading it. Uh, oftentimes, they'll defer to the to the business. So. Uh, that's a interesting point there from from Mark. We also have uh, George uh, Deramuskas. It's a it's a Greek last name. I can tell it's Greek, but I just can't uh, pronounce the name. It's George Deramuskas, I think is how you pronounce it. And he said, no, they should not be led by IT. The IT department should be in direct contact with the appropriate stakeholder in each department, and there should be a reasonable back and forth when it comes to discussing specifications and implementations. So I, that's a uh, interesting point. He also goes on to say that the internal groups involved should be aware to a reasonable degree of the capabilities of the ERP system so that when they come up with the final specifications, there will be minor objections from the IT team. While leadership in theory is top-down, course adjustments must and will be done based on the feedback from IT. So very similar comment or or viewpoint as, as Mark had, which is IT is critical. IT needs to be heavily involved, but it shouldn't be IT leading it. It should be, you know, top down, more from a business perspective, uh, having the business owner that's that's ultimately overseeing and responsible for for the uh, transformation or the the ERP project. Now, another uh, comment here. Uh, this one's from Richard, uh, Richard Luine or Luine. It's it's Richard Luine, I believe it is, and he says it's always about the people, not electronics. So I, I would suspect that means. I don't know what that means. It, may, it might mean that, mean that it's not an IT-driven sort of thing, but it could also mean that it could be IT-driven as long as we're focused on the people, and I, I would agree with that. If, you, if you're focused on people and you've got a very strong business involvement, that's sort of the bare minimum you need to be successful in these sorts of initiatives and, and projects. Another um, comment here is from, from Eduardo Muniz, and he's someone I've been connected with and interacted quite a bit with on social media over the years. And his comment is, IT people can't do something they don't know. Change and transformation has never been their cup of tea. Track record confirms that most IT platforms have been traditionally wrongly deployed and unsustainable because of lack of organizational readiness and lack of change governance. So, uh, and then he poses a question of what can they do differently that have not been done so far to help companies deploy IT platforms uh, rightly or correctly. So it's, it's a good point. Um, you know, you need... You need people that know what they're doing and that have been maybe not been through this exact sort of transformation before, but someone who knows how to how to manage and lead a project, knows you know what the business needs are, and knows how to translate those business needs into what the future state of the organization could be from a people, process, and technology perspective. And that's why I think a lot of times it's the operational focus people that have a better sense of that because they're the ones that are largely driving 
the direction of the organization as a whole. And then IT is really meant to be an enabler of that and providing the tools and the capabilities to, to get you there from a, from a operational perspective. So I think uh, it's very similar comment or a similar thread there that, um, that should be, uh, that IT should be a, an enabler rather than a, a leader of a transformation. And then finally, last but not least, uh, Fadakimi Sadiq provided a comment that said other departments should lead the initiative while IT comes as support to guide the digital transformation process. Um, couldn't agree more. So there's a lot of a lot of good comments there, but I think this this uh, set of responses from the audience was actually a bit more aligned than the agile waterfall discussion that we had at the beginning of the segment. Uh, the agile waterfall discussion, you know, there's a lot of mixed. Uh, comments or, or opinions on that, whereas I think here most are agreeing that the business or the operations should be the ones leading uh, your your uh, transformation. And what I would say too is you you also even though I make this generalization and many that have responded to this question made the same the same generalization that IT should be an enabler and the business should be driving it and the operation should be driving it rather than the IT. Uh, even though most of us are saying that, I think you also have to look at the people you have. I mean, if you're an organization that has a really strong business savvy IT leader, that might be perfectly fine to have that person own it, have the IT department own it in that case. Um, the risk there, though, you want to be careful of is just making sure that you don't treat it as an IT initiative and you don't expect that IT person to have all the answers without involving people heavily from the business and other stakeholders. So that's the only risk there. But it could be done if you have that uh, purple unicorn, I think, is the comment that one of the uh, people made in the in the thread here. So, if you have that purple unicorn, that person that's that strong, which I have seen a handful of those in in my career with various clients, then that can be perfectly fine. And you also have to look at too, you know, what other resources do you have? You know, what what business stakeholders are going to be involved? Um, how are you going to have HR involved from a change management or a organizational design perspective? Um, how are we going to involve external people, whether it's consultants, system integrator, uh, technical resources, uh, data migration resources, all that stuff? How are you going to put this whole team together? And, and you can't really answer one of these questions without answering the whole equation and putting together the entire puzzle. So that's the other caveat I'd say is just make sure you have a, a vision of what you want the overall uh, project and uh, staff to look like and, and put together the, the right team accordingly. So thank you for everyone who responded on that. And again, if you're if you're not connected with me on LinkedIn, be sure to do so. That's where I have a lot of this discussion, asking questions and responding to questions and comments out on, on LinkedIn. So I encourage you to follow me there if you're not already and uh, appreciate everyone who provided feedback here today. Okay, so we're going to shift gears a little bit. And after a break, we're going to come back and bring on Adam Cheatham. And we're going to talk about the role of customization and how that affects cloud technology deployments. Customization has always been one of those challenges in the industry. Uh, cloud is obviously a big movement in the industry. Most vendors are moving that direction. So we want to see how those two things tie together. And we're going to have Adam on the show to discuss that. So we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberly. We'll be right back. Hey, feeling good, like I should. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. 
If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Like I should, when in Durbu walk around the neighborhood, feeling blessed. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. Thanks for being here today. Our final guest that we want to bring on the show here today is Adam Cheatham, who's a Director of Strategy and Transformation at Third Stage Consulting. Um, he actually did a video clip for us uh, recently talking about customization and how customization works with cloud technology deployments. And uh, I'm going to play you that clip here in a second, but I want to give you just some context of what what uh, what triggered or what, what set up this, this video that he created. And uh, the reason this, this topic is so important is because customization has always been a challenge for transformations. It's been one of the failure points that can uh, create problems and, and issues for organizations that, um, that, that haven't adequately managed or navigated effectively the whole customization process. Um, and too many times organizations use customization as a crutch when there's resistance to change. So in other words, instead of investing in organizational change management, organizations oftentimes end up customizing because people don't want to change and they're requesting the software to do something it wasn't ever built to do. Now that's that's one angle or one way to look at uh, customization. The other way to look at it is there are cases with any sort of enterprise technology where you do need to customize. I'd say 90, 95% of our clients have some sort of customization that's required when they deploy technology, whether it's cloud or not. Now, most organizations at the beginning of a transformation will say, hey, we don't want to customize. We want to use the technology off the shelf, the way it was built, use best practices, pre-configurations, whatever you want to call it, whatever you're being sold. That oftentimes is what executives and what project teams want. But then you get into the nuts and bolts of actually deploying that and it, things change and you find that either you're getting resistance to change and people are requesting customization and or you find that your secret sauce isn't supported by this technology that you're deploying and therefore you need to change something. And customization on its own isn't a bad thing. I, I think there's plenty of merit in customizing, but the problem is most organizations and teams have, stro have trouble segmenting or differentiating between necessary customization and customization that you don't really need to do or there's alternate ways around it or you just manage the resistance to change rather than trying to change the software to fit what people want. So it usually fits in one of those two buckets and in navigating that can be challenging. And then you add a third dimension to the mix or a third consideration or variable that can be challenging. And that is that cloud systems today uh, have a little bit more limitation on how much you can customize. So in other words, when you when you had on-premise systems and if you have an on-premise system now or if you're deploying an on-premise system, you know that you can change whatever you want in that software. You can go rewrite the code. You can, you can bend it. You can break it. You can do whatever you want for better or for worse. But with cloud systems, you don't have that same luxury generally, especially if you're in a software as a service, multi-tenant cloud situation, which is the uh, situation where if you're using a product like a NetSuite or Salesforce or Workday, those are multi-tenant SaaS types of solutions, meaning that it's the same software that's being used by hundreds or thousands of different customers, whereas the, the private cloud or the hybrid cloud scenario is you own your own version of the software, someone else is hosting in the cloud, but you can still do whatever you want to it. So depending on which one you fall into or which one you're considering, 
customization may or may not be more relevant uh, in those cases. But either way, in either scenario, this whole concept of customization and what we do about it, how do we manage it, all that stuff is super important. So I want to go ahead and play you this clip from Adam that he recorded uh, not too long ago. And he does a good job just in 10 minutes of unpacking the whole concept of customization and how it fits in to cloud. So let me play this clip real quick and we'll come back with some commentary right after that. Here's, here's Adam Cheatham from Third Stage Consulting. Hello, my name is Adam Cheatham. I'm here to talk to you guys a little bit about um, what the difference in customization is today in, in the ERP market space, um, you know, how that has evolved over time and what that means for your cloud ERP deployment. So um, once upon a time, ERP was hosted on servers in your, at your company. And you could get your ERP, you could get your CRM, your warehouse management system, and they all lived on the same set of interconnected servers. And so when something in one of these systems needed to be changed or customized, whether it's an integration point or something else, you could go in and you could add that ERP and you can make those customizations as you wanted to and you could create these custom interfaces and exchanges of information that you um, have led to a lot of opportunities in the market space for companies to cater their softwares to their own particular needs. Uh, this became problematic as those systems aged. So as you get away from things that are green screen of the past and start thinking about something a bit more modernized, um, customization became something that limited companies from being able to upgrade their software because when this custom piece right here is connected in a very specific way. If I pull this out and I put in something new, all of a sudden my WMS system speaks to my ERP and my CRM differently. So these customization points pre prevented me from being able to do that because now I need, to up, I need to change each of these integration points. What also happens is when I upgrade my WMS system, everything that's coded in these integration points is custom spaces or customized within that software system needs to be re-customized. Those customizations have to be done again to keep that integration and that flow of information up to date and um, synced up with the other systems. What cloud has done in this has created an environment where your ERP lives with a whole bunch of other ERPs. So this is our overall ERP in this space and you have client one, client two, client three, client four, client five, six, and all of these folks are living, their ERPs are living in the same space. We call that multi-tenant ERP. And so what happens is you create walls around each of these so that client one can't see client two, client two can't see client three. So you have these walls, these little bubbles that each of these instances now of ERP live. It's on the same code platform. Up here, you owned your code up here. At this point now, this code does not belong to you. So when an upgrade is made to this ERP in the cloud, um, make that a little bit clearer. This ERP in the cloud, when an update is made to this, that, that same concept of every little space that's modified needs to be brought up to speed um, applies here as well. So when this ERP is updated, all these clients are updated at the same time. 
What that means is that this code base needs to be the same for every single one of these clients. Whereas in the past, you could do this for client one, you could do this for client two, for client three, and customizations for client one, which might be you, won't be, that won't have any impact on client two, which would be me. So some of the benefits that you lose in that space is that flexibility. What happens then is if we now have our, our CRM and our WMS out here, because this is your environment, they may be separate cloud environments, they may be hosted on servers or something else, but for now we'll say that this is your home environment now and you are client number five. So this, we're gonna put this and say this is you. And when you have an integration between your CRM and your WMS, this goes back and forth just fine because you own that. This space right here belongs to you. You own this endpoint and you own that endpoint. You do what you want between them. When you need to integrate your CRM to your ERP and your WMS to your ERP, you're now taking these integration points and connecting somebody else's ERP. You don't own this code. So you can change only anything outside of this barrier now. So instead of owning all of that, the ability to make those changes, you're now restricted from making those changes, which means that you have these two pieces that you can play with and these two pieces that you can play with. The problem that starts to happen is when you maintain this, these two integration points, and this ERP provider is making updates, you now have to go and update each of these integration points and all of the custom points that they map to and your other two systems. So now that you're owning these two points, you're constantly playing catch up with your ERP because it's going to upgrade without you because it's taking everybody with it as opposed to in the past where you could upgrade on your own timeline or not at all, um, which is why a lot of people choose a new ERP. Your, your options are limited. Um, one of your new options today that is a developing space in the market is called an integration platform as a service. And you'll see this in, um, abbreviated as IPAAS, integration platform as a service. So what you can do is you can buy these integration points. And now all of a sudden this is your integration platform as a service here and somebody else is managing that. Somebody else is keeping up with this ERP provider. You're paying them to do that. That has pros and cons, of course, because now you don't have to do it, but at the same time, your integration between your CRM and your ERP is now dependent on somebody else. So you have several different parties here that become involved in this platform, which you have your, your ERP, who's party one, you, who's party two, which your ERP provider is always going to continue to think of it this way. They're one and you're two. Um, you have your th CRM, your WMS, your integration platform as a service, potentially another one if you start thinking down here. All of a sudden, um, as you can kind of tell, this infrastructure is starting to get very complicated very quickly. And what it's also doing 
is it's getting very expensive very quickly because you're now paying for cloud services every month. You're paying for integration platform as a service every month. And as you start replacing these other systems, you're also thinking cloud-based subscription services in this type of a platform gets very expensive very quickly. And what it's also doing is it's creating more and more walls because you now have a wall here between your CRM and your integration platform as a service and your ERP. And the walls just kind of start to stack up. It allows you far less flexibility with your own, uh, your own software space. And it allows you to um, outsource a lot of those things that you would normally pay for internally to other providers. And a lot of times these are good things. Remember we talked about how um, this model of customize whatever you want, how much, however much you want, is, has led to a lot of problems with being able to keep software systems up to date. And this model solves that problem. But what it does is it means that you have to be similar enough in your business to all of these other folks. So if you have particular uh, ways of doing things that are competitive advantages for you, um, a software that makes you do this may make you compromise those competitive advantages, makes it more important that you choose the right software, that the software is the right fit for you, not just here, but your integration platform and any other add-ons that might be involved in this need to be the right fit. You need to be very careful and diligent about the way that you choose those. It also means that as you think about changing your software and, and changing your business to, to meet it, because there are spaces where changing your business to fit the software is the right thing to do, um, you, you lose that safety net of, well, if I can't change my business because that's how I make money, I'll just change the software. And that option is far more limited these days. Um, it means that you are going to take a closer look at your business processes. You're going to take a closer look at getting them on best practice because the more you're on best practice, the better you can take advantage of this model and the, the more you can stay up to date and the more you can minimize this platform as a service cost. It also means that you have to start thinking strategically on what business processes you're going to up, uh, upgrade to best practices and which ones you're going to leave alone because they're part of your competitive advantage. As you change those processes, it becomes because of the software and you need to wrap in a, a, an organizational change management tactic as well. So this particular set of problems is creating a whole new set of uh, challenges for business owners in that just adopting a cloud software um, is a bit more complicated and not quite as, um, as fa fantastic and, and problem solving as you would believe because it does create other problems. And as you start to uncover some of the spaces in your implementation and in your lifespan of your ERP, you will find that these integration platforms as a services become a larger part of, of your business. So I um, appreciate the time that you're taking with me today to, to listen in on this, um, this conversation. You know, if you guys have extra qu other questions, feel free to, to reach out to me directly. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. I would be happy to talk to you about this, these types of things sometime in the future. Thanks. Okay, well, thanks for that, Adam. Uh, that was a great video he had put together a while back, and I thought it'd be worth playing here today. Uh, again, some good thoughts here on how to handle customization, when and where to, to do it, how to address it, how to manage it in the context of an overall transformation. So hopefully that's given some, some good thought on how 
how that concept and how customization might fit into your overall strategy and a plan. And at the very least, you just want to be aware of those nuances that, that Adam was talking about. And like I said, there's no right or wrong answer here. If you, if you need to customize and it's a key enabler of your, your strategy and your secret sauce, then by all means, customize. Or if you need to find a third-party bolt-on system or, God forbid, you need to run manual business processes because that's the only way you can preserve that secret sauce or keep those workflows intact that make you different, make you better than your competitors, then by all means, do it. The problem is so many software vendors will sell you on this idea that we have the best practices. Our software provides you the answers of what you need to, to be successful. And I guess if that were true, I would, I would challenge you to think about it from this perspective. If ERP systems or any sort of enterprise technology really contained what you need to be to have a competitive advantage and to outperform your competition, then how is it that other organizations would be using that same software and you're somehow going to outperform them? Chances are that organizations, most organizations, including your own, are going to have some sort of competitive advantage that isn't easily automated because systems haven't been built for that, which is why it's a competitive advantage. You're, you, know, you have some sort of secret sauce that you've built, and by definition, you're not going to find software that necessarily does things the way you need it to. So don't be surprised when you find those pockets within your organization that you do find that you might need to customize or find a third-party bolt-on. Um, or you know have some sort of workaround or workflow modification. So that's the way that uh, we typically advise our clients to think about it. So I hope between Adam's video and my commentary on that, hopefully that's been helpful. Um, and that was really it for today. That was the, the last guest we had for today. I want to thank you all for watching here today. Again, please subscribe to the YouTube channel if you're watching me, uh, watching on my YouTube channel. Uh, if you're watching this uh, or listening to this on one of the podcast platforms, please drop us a review and subscribe to the channel as well. Share it with your friends, share it with your colleagues. We'd love to get the word out about this podcast to as many people as we can. So I want to thank you again for joining here today. Hope you all have a great day and we'll see you next time on the next episode of Transformation Ground Control. Have a great day. We'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.